So would you turn your Bibles then to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, and we come to verse 31. Luke chapter 18 and verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what he said. In the 1953 film, War of the Worlds, apparently there is another film that was Tom Cruise, a remake that came later. I saw the 1953, which kind of dates me. Um, There's a scene where Dr. Matthew Collins, the pastor, thinks he should negotiate with the invading Martians. So he walks out towards the nearest Martian spaceship reading Psalm 23, and everyone with half a brain knows what is about to happen. He thinks he's going out to befriend them, to share the gospel with them, Uh, But without mercy, without emotion, without hesitation, he is zapped by a laser coming out of the spaceship. And I remember thinking, as a little boy, I have to point out, while I watched that film, having mixed feelings. Because in Pastor Collins, there is this strange mixture of faith and foolishness, of naivety and bravery, of courage and stupidity. He courageously goes out to face the Martians, reading Psalm 23 uh, aloud. And everyone who's watching that film knows that he is entering the valley of the shadow of death. Why would anyone place themselves in danger and uh, into the, uh, uh, the place of death? Well, that's what Jesus did. Not naively and foolishly, because Jesus knew exactly where he was going and what he was doing. But he goes up to Jerusalem knowing what was waiting for him there, that he would be entering the valley of the shadow of death by going to Jerusalem. And that's what our passage is about this morning. Jesus reveals to his disciples what would happen to him in Jerusalem, that he would enter the valley of the shadow of death, and there be put to death. I want you to notice four things this morning. First of all, notice the suffering that Jesus embraces. Look at verse 31 and 32. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, verse 33 as well, and after flogging, They will kill him. This is the third time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus explicitly warns his disciples of his death in Jerusalem. He tells them that he will suffer from humiliation, brutality, and death. They would humiliate him. In verse 32, they would mock him. They would shamefully treat him or insult him, says the NIV, and they would spit upon him. And we know how accurately and uh, uh, specifically that was fulfilled in the life of our Lord. Remember, the soldiers stood around him and put a scarlet robe on him and pushed a crown of thorns on him. You remember that they put a staff in his hand, symbolizing a scepter, and knelt in front of him and Uh, pretended to pay him homage. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. 
You remember they repeatedly struck him with a staff and with with their fists. You remember how repeatedly they spat on him and mocked him. Hardened, brutal Roman soldiers desensitized to human suffering through uh, their military career and by the pagan conscience that reduced the dignity of, of, of man. Uh, here, Jesus to them was simply a peasant with pretensions to kingship. But they not only uh, humiliate him, they brutalize him in verse 33. Jesus tells the disciples that they would flog him. The authorized version says scourge him. This flogging was inflicted with a cat of nine tails, a handle with nine pieces of leather attached to it. But that leather was split in places so that stones and flint and pieces of broken bone could be inserted to cause as much pain as possible. The psalmist tells us that his back was like a ploughed field from the injuries that he received. In fact, so weakened was he from the treatment that he received at the hands of these overzealous Roman soldiers, you remember Jesus was unable to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. Remember, they had to conscript Simon of Cyrene uh, to help carry the cross uh, to Calvary. They humiliated him. They brutalized him. And finally, they killed him. Verse 33, they will kill him. They put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And how he suffered at the hands of those Roman soldiers in that. It was said that he who died by crucifixion died a thousand deaths. In fact, so brutal was crucifixion considered by the Romans that no Roman citizen was ever allowed to be crucified. And that's why Paul was beheaded rather than crucified as a Roman citizen. Crucifixion was a long and lingering death deliberately drawn out to cause as much pain as possible. The victim was first secured to a crossbeam with nails driven through, well, The the word that we use is the palms of his hands. But that word palm not only referred to the the palm of the hand but to the wrist. And it seems from archaeological discoveries that it was uh, a nail that was driven through the wrist. That crossbeam was then hoisted and lifted into place on top of an upright stake giving a capital T shape. Every jolt as they moved that beam to secure it to the top of that pole sent waves of excruciating pain through the body of the victim, often dislocating the joints. The hammering of the nails into the feet actually provided some relief because the victim could lift his body up on those bleeding wounds and allow himself to breathe rather than die of suffocation. Then the sign that identified the crime was fastened to the top of that capital T, which gave it our familiar uh, cross shape. Again, this sign was written in mockery. This is the king of the Jews. And, And Jesus hangs on that cross, brutalized and scandalized before a, a watching world. Now, some people object to thinking or considering the physical sufferings 
of the Lord. And they, they say, well, you know, the spiritual sufferings that our, our Lord endured are of greater significance. And of course that's true. When our sin was laid on his sinless soul and the wrath of a sin-hating God was unleashed uh, upon him, that, that was a, a, a greater burden to be sure. But we mustn't trivialize or minimize the physical sufferings of our Lord and treat them as insignificant. I want, you, uh, I want to remind you this morning that our Lord had an extremely sensitive uh, nature. And that mockery was a terrible ordeal for him. I want to remind you that Jesus had the same nerve endings as you and I. And those beatings and that flogging, those nails, inflicted terrible pain on God incarnate. And I want to remind you that the one who was put to death was the creator of those creatures that crucified him. And that he was the only one who didn't deserve to die. But they humiliated him. They brutalized him. And they killed him. This is how they treated the Lord of glory. And what I want you to see is that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He knew what lay in store. He knew through the prophets. Look at verse 31. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The Old Testament revealed to Jesus what would happen to him as the promised one, as the Christ. But he was also informed, not just by scriptural revelation, but by direct revelation from God. Look at verse 32. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament is that revealed to us. That Jews would hand over the Messiah, their Messiah, to the Gentiles. So the Father revealed that directly to the Son. So through scriptural revelation and through direct revelation, Jesus knows what will happen to him in Jerusalem. That he would be humiliated, that he would be brutalized, that he would be put to death. But nevertheless, in spite of all that, he still goes up to Jerusalem. Look at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem. He knew what lay in front of him in Jerusalem. And yet he says, We are going to Jerusalem. If we knew the suffering and the pain that was in front of us throughout our lives, we would want to run in the opposite direction. If Pastor Collins knew that he was about to be zapped by the Martians, he would never have gone out. But Jesus knew. And Jesus went. He embraced his suffering, the suffering that awaited him in Jerusalem. We are going to Jerusalem, he tells the disciples. That's important to understand. Jesus willingly, voluntarily enters the valley of the shadow of death. He embraced his suffering. In fact, back in Luke 9, we're told that he set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. The NIV says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. With steely determination, we would say, he set out for Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen to him. And yet he still went to Jerusalem. That's the first point, the suffering that Jesus embraces. The second thing 
I want you to notice is the reason Jesus explains. Why would Jesus willingly and deliberately go to Jerusalem when he knew what waited for him there? Why would he walk into danger? Why would he put himself in a vulnerable position? Well, there are many reasons. But I want you to notice the reason that's given by Jesus here in the text in verse 31. And taking the twelve, verse 31, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus was conscious that in going to Jerusalem, he was embracing the cross He was fulfilling prophecy, prophecy that had been given in the Old Testament. Our Bibles are divided into two, an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. The Old Testament looks back on the coming of Christ. And the Old Testament, this is important to register this in your mind, the Old Testament was completed, completed, not given, but completed 400 years before the birth of Jesus. It was written over a period of a thousand years by 30 different authors who were inspired by God. And by type and shadow, by promise and prophecy, they looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, to a day when God would send his promised deliverer into the world. And listen, there are over 600 prophecies in the Old Testament that inform us about the Messiah and his work. The first one, known as the Proto-Evangelion, is found in the Garden of Eden when God says to the serpent, listen to these words, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And the details of that uh, gospel, that first gospel, are amazing. Notice it's the seed of the woman. Why not the seed of the man? Why would God not say through the seed of the man a deliverer will come? Why the seed of a woman? Because of the virgin birth. The seed of Satan will strike the seed of the woman and will wound him. But it's not a fatal blow. It's not a final blow. It's to the heel. It's not to the end. It's it's a wound, but it's not a critical wound. But through that wound, um, the seed of the woman tramples down the head of the, the serpent. Tramples him down. And the first gospel promise in the Garden of Eden is given that the seed of the woman uh, would, through a wound inflicted by the serpent, will strike down the serpent himself. And from that first gospel promise in an ever-widening stream and river of revelation, God unfolds his purpose and plan for the coming of the Messiah. And it's amazing in detail. Amazing. Not only are we told where he would be born, we're told how he would be born. That he would be born of a woman, that he would be born of a virgin. We're told where he would grow up, what his ministry would involve, and ultimately how he would suffer and die. In fact, some of those prophecies are so detailed, 
You you would think that they were written by an eyewitness during his lifetime rather than years before. Do you remember when lockdown began? (coughs) We looked at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, given 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Just let that fact register. 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is buried with the rich in, in death. Amazing. Augustine, uh, writing in the 5th century, says, Methinks he writes a gospel, not a prophecy. Such detail. For over 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Jesus held the scrolls of Isaiah in his hand. He preached from them. Do you remember Philip in his chariot was reading from that very scroll? The scroll was there. The scroll, the book of Isaiah was completed at the time of Jesus. Now if Nostradamus or any other self-proclaimed prophet had written history in advance in such detail rather than vague illusions that can be interpreted one way or another. People would have been poring over uh, his works. Use your head, or as my dad used to say, use your loaf. This is Old Testament. But Old Testament tells us what's going to happen in the New Testament. That tells us something about the uniqueness of this book, the significance of this book, and the inspiration of this book. This book is the Word of God. Now, Jesus was conscious that in going up to Jerusalem, he was fulfilling not only the purpose of God, but uh, he was a fulfillment of the prophecies of God. And right up to his final breath, he was conscious that he was a living fulfillment of prophecy. Do you remember those words, I thirst, I thirst? In John 19, we're told later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled. He said, I thirst. There was one outstanding prophecy, Psalm 69, verse 21. One final um, brush uh, of, of the paint that had to be applied to complete the Old Testament. And in order that that prophecy would be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. If prophecy was to be completed, the Bible to be authenticated, and the true identity of Jesus validated he had to go to Jerusalem so that everything written by the prophets would be fulfilled in him if one of those prophecies had failed to come to pass the bible would have been relegated to the fiction shelves of our libraries I'm sure it would have been admired as a fine piece of literature it might have been put in the history section or the fiction fiction section to be admired with Virgil and Shakespeare and Milton and the Brontes. 
But because every prophecy was fulfilled, we know that this book is the word of God. And that's the reason given here why Jesus went to Jerusalem. Now, it's not the only reason, but it's the reason stated here. He went to fulfill all that was written about him in the prophets. The reason that Jesus explains. The suffering that Jesus embraces. The reason that Jesus explains. The third thing from these verses I want you to notice is the confidence that Jesus expressed. Now sometimes people (coughs) facing death embrace it with an unusual sense of confidence, with inevitability and perhaps a degree of resignation. You see it with soldiers. They put themselves into the center. Uh, to the, the place of danger. They know they have a job to do and they willingly lay down their lives for others. That's what they're supposed to do. As the soldiers in the First World War used to say in the trenches, if, if a bullet has your name on it, it'll get you. Sometimes old people, older people, just give up uh, with a sense of despair, a sense of inevitability. I remember visiting a, a man in hospital and He was to get his results the next day and he was bright and he was engaging and he was chatty. The next day he received his results and it was just as if he had lost the will to live. It was like a a switch had been flicked in his head and he he, he just gave up. But I, I want you to notice that Jesus' confidence didn't come through this uh, kind of self-resignation. Jesus' death was different because even in the face of death, Jesus had confidence. Notice carefully verse 33, and on the third day he will rise. Jesus knew he would be humiliated, he would be brutalized and killed, but he also knew on the third day he would rise. He would be put to death, but he would rise again. How he knew was through Old Testament prophecy, perhaps direct revelation as well. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, when speaking of the resurrection, that Christ died for our sins, and then he adds the phrase, according to the scriptures. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. But then he adds, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That the Old Testament not only predicted the death of Jesus, but it predicted the glorious resurrection of Jesus. You remember in Isaiah 53 that we're told he would be cut off from the land of the living, that he would be buried with a rich man in his death. But in that same passage, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He who was dead and buried will have a family, will have descendants, will have children, children by adoption, children by faith, but children he would have. The Old Testament prophesied the resurrection as well as his humiliation. Psalm 22, that graphic psalm that gives us an insight into the suffering of Jesus. We're told at the end of that psalm, all the families of the nations will bow down before him. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem confidently and deliberately. Not in a kind of death wish kind of way. 
Not with full of foreboding and inevitability. He knows, he knows that he will rise again. And our Lord is such an example to us in that. We can have the same confidence in the face of death, knowing that we will rise again if we have the same hope. You know, Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, We do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We do grieve. Oh, yes, we grieve. Sometimes those wounds of grief are deep. But we have hope because we believe that Jesus will bring back with him those who have fallen asleep. And then those who have died will be raised, reunited with their spirits that Jesus brings back and will uh, meet him in the air and inherit the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. That is our hope, that when a Christian dies, he doesn't, we don't grieve like everybody else because on the basis of Scripture, on the promises of Scripture, we believe that that individual trusting in Christ, resting in Christ, will rise again. We believe that on the promises of the Word of God. You know, since coming to Balamina, I have conducted over 20 funerals. And a number of people have said to me <clears throat> that um, it was so unlike a funeral. And I said, what do you mean? It's, a, it's almost like a celebration. It, there, there, there is great hope. Now, there is grief. There is grief. But there is hope. The future, says Thomas Watson, the Puritan, is bright. A Christian's best days are yet to come. You can enter the valley of the shadow of death with confidence when you know that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A number of years ago, somebody gave me a poem, and I've made a practice, not at every funeral, but some funerals, of reading this poem out at the graveside. And I, I don't want to inflict any more pain in anybody that that has happened to this morning but I, I feel compelled to read let me read it to you when I have breathed my final breath and dropped this robe of flesh and death when my appointed time is done and my allotted time is gone don't stand around my grave and cry I'll not be there I did not die my saviour came to call me home and I to heaven uh, with him have gone. Now I am free from sin and pain, and with my the glorified I reign. Don't stand around my grave and cry. I'm glorified, I did not die. Seated with Jesus on his throne, glorified by what he has done, I am a trophy of his grace, rejoicing I behold his face. Don't stand around my grave and cry. I am with Christ, I did not die. My body lies beneath the clay until the resurrection day. And Jesus will return and then body and soul unite again. Don't stand around my grave and cry. Rejoice with me. I did not die. Now let me ask you do, you, do you have that confidence? Do you have that assurance? Jesus faced death confidently because he knew he would rise again, that he would live again. Do you have that same confidence? To face de- death Embrace death with confidence. You may, you must, you must have faith in the resurrection. The confidence that Jesus expressed. Suffering that Jesus embraced. 
the <coughs> reasons Jesus explains, the confidence Jesus uh, expressed, the confidence Jesus expressed, and then lastly, the love that Jesus exhibited. The whole passage is permeated, permeated by the love of the Lord Jesus. You see it there in verse 34. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, for they did not grasp what he said. It was hid from them. Although Jesus expressed clearly to the disciples, directly to the disciples, what would happen to him in Jerusalem, they did not understand. The ESV says they they did not grasp what he meant. Now, the reason they didn't grasp the significance of what Jesus said to them was that it was hid from them. Now, who hid it? Who hid this this meaning, this the significance of what he said from them? Well, Jesus hid it. The Father concealed it. The Spirit veiled it. The reason he hid the full significance um, of what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem was because of their love to him and because of his love to them. Their faith at this stage was weak and fragile. They just couldn't cope with the information that had been given to them at that time. So Jesus blinded their minds to the significance of what he said. Now, How much they understood, we don't know. But it is clear that they did not understand everything. Now, sometimes God does that. He knows how much we can take. He doesn't reveal to us all that he has planned for us immediately. And that's because of his mercy, his grace, and his love towards us. Now, it was important that he told them, because later they would understand. But now it's only a a, a partial understanding that they have. Jesus shielded them from the full significance. It reminds us of the Old Testament, Isaiah 42 and verse 5. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering uh, wick he will not put out. Our God is loving. Our God is gracious. Our God is kind to the vulnerable, to the weak in their faith. He often shields them from the full significance of what is happening. And there is another reason, an even deeper manifestation of the love of God in this passage. Uh, I'm sure you've seen it by now. Jesus willingly and deliberately goes to Jerusalem, knowing exactly (coughs) what would happen to him there. And it just wasn't his commitment to fulfill prophecy that drove him to Jerusalem, to put himself into the valley of the shadow of death. It was his love for sinners like you and me. As I said earlier, if we knew what was going to happen to us, suffering and difficulty and pain, we would execution, we would run in the opposite direction. But our Lord willingly goes to suffering because he knows that God could only save men and women and forgive them by his going to Jerusalem. If ever sin was to be forgiven, a sinless substitute had to be found. And our sin had to be laid on that sinless substitute. And God's anger against that sin had to be poured out on that substitute. And that's exactly what happened. God gathered up all the eternal wrath of everyone who would ever believe in him. 
He put that that, uh, sin on his son and literally unleashed all hell against him so that he might maintain his integrity in terms of his justice and at the same time pardon and forgive justifiably sinners. That he was the great substitute for sin. I read a story a number of years ago about man who was driving a bus in the valleys of Wales and uh, he was coming down the mountain into one particular valley in a very narrow road that was cut out of the side of the mountain. Uh, There was a steep drop on one side and a a steep uh, hill on the other so he could only direct his bus on that road and as he came down into the village he saw a little boy standing in the middle of the road waving to him. And uh, so he applied the brakes, and the brakes failed. He, he juggled the gears and tried to go down the gears, but he couldn't get it back into gear, and the bus kept getting faster, the momentum building up, building up. And everybody in the bus is wondering what's going to happen. He had a choice of taking the bus over the side of the cliff or plowing into that little boy and sacrificing his life for the life of the passengers on the bus. And in a moment he took that decision and he drove into the boy. It's obvious that he was killed and he came down into the village and then started to rise at the hill at the other end and eventually the bus stopped and the bus driver's distraught. He's, he's hanging over the wheels, sobbing inconsolably and the passengers don't know what to say to him. They're just relieved that they're safe but but distraught over the loss of life and they they pass him and they say nothing and eventually one man passes him and he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says don't worry we saw what happened it was either that boy or us and the man looks up with to him with tears in his eyes and he says you don't understand he says it was my son my son the son came out to welcome his father to the village as he drove through that village, village every, every day. Multiply that scenario by infinity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I love that little word soul because it magnifies the Uh, dimensions of the love of God. He so loved, so loved the world that he gave his son into the world and his son set his face as a flint to go, go to Jerusalem knowing what would happen there because of his great love for sinners like you and me. And it is such then, it is It is such a sin. Of all the sins that you have ever committed, the greatest sin that you'll ever commit is to reject the love of the Lord Jesus and the provision that he's made at the cross. It's to insult him in the worst possible terms. And in this passage, in the willingness of Jesus to go to the cross, we see love unfurled. We see love demonstrated. Oh, how much, how much he must have loved us. Amen.